look at a few more parables today. That's Matthew 13. And while you're getting there, and I want to relate this and make this as relevant as I can to, to what's going on this week, because this time next Sunday, we'll have a, our next president. And uh, it doesn't matter whether you are Republican or whether you're Democrat or whether you're Independent. If you have worked for a candidate and you've prayed for the election and for a particular candidate, uh, next week you'll discover whether your work paid off, whether it was rewarded, and whether your prayers were answered. Now what happens if next week your work was not rewarded and your prayers were not answered, uh, then what are you going to do? How are you going to feel? Are you going to be worried? Going to wring your hands? <laughs> this country has been through so many crises since I've been born. <clears throat> I mean, you think about the wars that we've been in, you think about the crashes that we've had. You think about what it was like in the late 60s and early 70s when we didn't know whether this country would stand or not. We didn't know whether we would have a country. Remember what was going on? The riots in the streets? Remember the different kinds of riots that were going on? There were civil rights riots. There were riots against Vietnam. There were shootings at Kent State, we were in a constitutional crisis with the president. Oh, what's this world coming to? Will we ever survive? Oh, well, here we are. How many years later? 50 years later? It doesn't look like any of us are worse off than we were before. Country's still going. The Constitution still stands. We've had good presidents. We've had lousy presidents and everything in between. And you know something? Are you going to worry? That your candidate didn't win? Are you going to have faith in God that God can take care of us for the next 50 years? Okay. Now, we're going to see how these parables that we're dealing with today answer some of those questions and tells us what kind of response that we should have. Okay? So we're looking at Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to begin at verse 34. Now, let me remind those who have been here and those who are visiting that Jesus uses parables. He speaks in parables which are... Simple stories drawn from everyday life to teach lessons about the kingdom of God. And he, these parables teach lessons about the kingdom of God through the use of analogy. The kingdom of God is like something. You can see how it relates. Last week we looked at the parable of the four soils. And today we're going to look at the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now you're going to see how relevant this is. Wheat and tares. Okay. And it's going to answer the question, if Jesus is brought in the kingdom of God like he said he did, remember he said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has what? It's come upon you. It's already here in some sense. This parable will answer the question, if Jesus has brought in the kingdom... Why hasn't the world changed? Why hasn't it had a bigger effect? Why is there still evil in the world if the kingdom is here? I mean, after all, when the kingdom comes, shouldn't we all be living 
and peace under the reign of God, why don't we see it? So something's going on, and this is going to explain what's happening. And this is called the parable of the wheat and tares in verse 24. So you with me? So let's read this. Another parable he put forth to them. This would be the crowd. The mass of the people who joined him. Saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, at this point, we don't know what these words mean. What they represent. We don't know the analogy. Okay, For example, in verse 24, he talks about a man. Who does that man represent? I have no idea at this point. We'll find out a little bit later. We see good seed. What does the good seed represent? Well, you might be surprised. But we don't know at this point. Okay? And then you see, he sowed the seed in a field. What does the field represent? So we don't know what that represents at this point. Okay? So look at verse 25. Look what happens next. But while the man slept, something happens while the man sleeps. This is the wind. When does something happen? It happens when? While the man slept. This is something that's going to be done secretly that he's not aware of while he sleeps. A lot of things happened last night while you're, you were asleep and you're not aware of them. Because people were doing things in secret. So this is the when. Okay? Something happens next when? While the man slept. Look at the next phrase. His enemy came. This is the who. This man has an enemy. Maybe a next door neighbor, since this man is a farmer. Okay, that's the who of the statement. And look what he did. He came and he sowed tares. That's what he did. That's what he sowed. He sowed tares, or what we would say is bad seed that would produce weeds. Okay? That's what he did. So we know who did it. We know when he did it. We know what he did. Where did he do it? Among the wheat. Among the wheat. <laughs> among the crop that the farmer planted. He put weed seed right in amongst the wheat seed. Now it doesn't say why he did it. But we know if he's an enemy he did it to harm this man's crop. Didn't he? Didn't he? He wants to do something to sabotage this man's, good man's work. Now, this is the parable. We don't know what it means, but we're starting to get a feel for what happens in the story. Now, the tares, when it says he sowed tares, this was, uh, we know from uh, the region where this happened, the tares uh, were called darnel. It was a certain kind of seed called darnel. It was a poisonous seed that when it grew, if you ate it, you would, you would die. So this man goes in and he plants this darnel, these weeds, among the wheat. Now, when you look at the two seeds, you look at the darnel or the tare seed, and you look at the wheat seed, they look nearly identical. You couldn't tell, tell the difference. And when they start to grow... And they start to sprout, you can't tell the difference. It's not until uh, they've really matured that you can tell the difference. The, the tear goes only so high and the wheat goes way up and then it's obvious that there's a difference. 
Okay? So it's just important that you know this. So this is what this is a parable of the wheat and the tares. This part of the parable, you might call it the terrible parable. Oh no, come on. That, that, that was not that was not like me to come up with some some lame thing like this. Okay, this is the terrible part. Okay, anyway. Now look at this. Look at verse 46. But when the grain had sprouted and produced the crop, in other words, now we have this whole crop produced, then the tares also appeared. And you could now see that difference. It became apparent that something had happened. Okay? Because the one was taller than the other. Now look at verse 27. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. <coughs> yes, I've only sown wheat. Somebody must have come in, an enemy must have come in and done this. So the owner realizes he's got a problem. He's aware that something has happened. What's the solution? What's he going to do? Well, let's find out. Verse 28, the servant said to him, they come up with their solution, do you want us to go and gather them up? We'll just go pull them right out of the ground. But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. <clears throat> if you pull up these crops, what you're going to do is you're going to hurt the wheat because when tares and wheat grow... Roots go down into the ground, and guess what happens when roots get in the ground? They intertangle. You pull off a tear, guess what you're going to do? Hurt the wheat. You're going to do more harm than good. So the owner says, that's not a good solution. You'll, you'll destroy my crop if you do that. So what's the solution? Look at verse 30. He says... Let both grow together until the harvest. What we need to do is we need to wait. We need to wait. And at that time, at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, these are people who are going to cut off the heads of that crop. I'm going to say to the reapers, first, Gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So, what I'll, well, when the crop gets totally healthy and it's ready to pick, then I just want you to come down. I want you to cut off the tares, and the tares going to go to be burned. Tares thrown in the fire for burning. The wheat will be cut down and put in the barn. Tares burn wheat barn. Okay? So, that's what he tells them to do, and that is the end of the parable with no explanation. Okay? Now we go to parable number two. So we don't know exactly what that means. We can sort of try to figure it out, but we don't really know what it means. So now we come to parable number two, which is found in verse 31. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like, here's the analogy, 
a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. And so here he's talking about a story of a man puts a little seed, which the mustard seed proverbial was, the, was proverbially the littlest seed in Israel, and he plants it and he puts it in his field, this little seed. And he says, the kingdom of God's like that. Ah, I can understand that one. This parable is going to be easy to understand. The kingdom of God starts off small. Starts off little. But then look what he says in the end of verse 32. But when it is grown, it's greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, mustard seeds, when they grew, grew larger than any herb that you would have. In other words, you might have thyme, you might have you know, some other herbs, but guess what? A mustard plant grows 12 feet tall. It grows larger than any of the other seeds that you would put in some sort of vegetable garden. So, the kingdom starts off small, but guess what it does? It grows larger than any other kingdom in the world. And eventually it'll take over the entire world. Eventually. Eventually. It'll take over the entire world. There'll be enough room for everybody to get in. <clears throat> now, when Jesus tells this parable to the apostles, they must be scratching their heads. Because the kingdom of God, as far as they're concerned, consists of just a small group of people and a few people who hang around Jesus and hang on to his every word. And people are abandoning Jesus left and right. We know that from other chapters. And he has the religious establishment against him. And eventually one of the disciples is going to turn on him, betray him, and it's going to look like a failed project. I would say when Jesus told this parable, never in their wildest dreams did any apostle ever imagine what we would see today and how large Christianity and the kingdom of God has grown today. They would have never understood. They couldn't have grasped that. But guess what? Jesus is letting them in on a secret. That's what the kingdom of God is like. This is not a failed project. The kingdom of God will succeed and take over the entire world. So, that's parable number two. Now let's look at parable number three. Verse 33. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of God is like leaven. It's like some yeast which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. Now, I can understand that one, and so can you. The kingdom of God is like yeast. You know what yeast is? Put yeast in dough, and what does the dough do? It expands, it rises, it grows. See, uh, how does it do it? It gets into the dough, and it's hidden in the dough. You can't see the yeast, but everything the yeast touches, it affects. It not only invades the dough, it pervades the dough, and that dough just expands and expands, expands and expands. And so again, what we have is another parable of growth. Starts off small, but it affects everything it touches. And it will expand. So, that sort of makes sense. It has a, an effect on everything that it touches. <clears throat> now, look what 
Matthew says in verse 34. He makes an observation. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. So from this point on, Jesus is going to speak in parables to the masses of people. This is going to be his method of teaching. Why did he do it? Look what it says in verse 35. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, and this is the prophet Isaiah saying, I will open my mouth, God speaking through the prophecy, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things kept secret. For how long? From the foundation of the world. Jesus, Matthew says, Jesus is doing this, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, that God would speak in parables about things, secret things, things that have been hidden since the foundation of the world. This has been God's plan all along to bring about his kingdom and to do it this way. But guess what? He didn't reveal it. He's just starting to reveal it now. <laughs> it's been hidden. <laughs> it's been God's secret since the beginning of the world. But now he's starting to reveal it through Jesus Christ that this is his method of bringing about the kingdom. <clears throat> so, and those of us who can understand it will accept it. And those of us who can't understand it will reject it, as we saw last week in the parable of the soils. Okay? So now, we come to the explanation of the first parable, wheat and tares. What in the world does it all mean? Okay. Look at verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitudes, that's the crowds, <coughs> away, and he went into the house. What house? Well, the house back in 13.1. See, 13.1? On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. Now guess what? He goes back into the house. Remember that was the house where he healed the man and his mother and his brothers came and they were standing outside the house? Remember that? You're with us? You'll remember that. So in verse 36, Jesus sent the multitude away. He goes back into the house. And his disciples came and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Now watch, he's going to explain it. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is what? The Son of Man. Okay, so this verse, verse 37, corresponds to verse 24. That a man sowed seed in his field. Who was that man? That man represents the Son of Man. So that's Jesus, right? So we get the first part of the puzzle. The man is Jesus, the Son of Man. Okay, look at verse 38. Second part of this puzzle. The field is what? <clears throat> the world. Do you see that? The field is the world. Okay. Look at the next thing. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. <clears throat> Notice, the good seed isn't the gospel in this parable. The good seed is people. What kind of people? God's people. Children of the kingdom. Those who have responded positively to the gospel and have repented. Those are the seeds that the Son of Man is planting in the world. God is putting His 
people in the world. Then look what it says. Then verse 38. Next part of the puzzle. But the tares are the son, sons of the wicked ones. They are Satan's people. They are the opponents of the gospel, the opponents of the people of God, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, those who reject the gospel. Guess what? God's people and Satan's people live side by side in this world. This is what Jesus would teach this week. I'm convinced of that. We just happen to have this passage. God's people and Satan's people live side by side. Where? In the field. In the world. Notice the field is not the church. Did you see that? Where was that? 36 and the, the 37, 38. 38? The field is the world, not the church. We often think, oh, there are wheat and tares in the church. Well, that might be true, but that's not what this parable is talking about. Good and bad exist in the world, not in the church. The church should be pure, shouldn't it? We should have pure people in the church. The church should reflect the kingdom of God. Always. We should be doing godly things in the church. But this is talking about good people and bad people, God's people and Satan's people in the world. God's kingdom has broken into the world through the person of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and Satan has his people in the world, and their job, like tares, is to wreak havoc on God's people. Satan has planted them there to mess you up. You wonder why you have problems at work and in your neighborhood and things like that? He has his people there. So you have these two kinds of people in the world. Now look at verse 39. Look at part 5 of the puzzle. The enemy who sowed them, the tares, is who? The devil. He places his people right here. This explains why the world, even though the kingdom is broken into this world, the world hasn't entirely changed yet. Even though the kingdom is in our midst, guess what? Satan is still on the loose. He can't do the things that he used to do because God has bound him a little bit. But he's on a long chain and he can still cause a lot of havoc in this world. And if God would take Satan's people out of this world prematurely, guess what that would do to God's people? It would harm them. You can't take out the tares prematurely or it will destroy the wheat crop. And in this case, it will harm God's people. Why? Because the good and bad in this world, their lives are so intertwined that to remove the one at the wrong time is going to affect the others. If we could just get rid of that guy, things would get better. If we could just do this, we do that. It doesn't work that way. I wish it did. But history shows it doesn't work that way. Now look at the sixth thing of the sixth part of the puzzle. 
Then in verse 39, in the middle of verse 39, the harvest is when? The end of the age. That's when everything is going to work out the way we want it to work out. And the reapers are us. No, no. The reapers are the angels. They're going to do God's bidding. So our tendency is to get rid of the evil, and then that's nothing wrong with that, but guess what? There's a right way and there's a wrong way. And it must be done God's way, and ultimately it will be done at the end of the age, and the angels will do that. Now look at verse 40. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Satan's people will be punished. The Son of Man will send out His angels, the equivalent to the servants over here, and they will gather out of His kingdom all the things that offend, that would be the people who offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here is the final judgment. And at the final judgment, two kinds of people will be thrown into this fire, the scripture says. Those who offend cause others to sin. That means cause others to stumble. And those who sin themselves, who follow the mandate of Satan. Now I want you to notice something. If you look at these parables for what they, the parable that the tares and the wheat. The Son of Man is there in the beginning, and the Son of Man is there in the end. In the beginning, He sows. Right? At the beginning, He sows. Okay? At the end, He sends. At the beginning, He sows the seed. He puts His people in the world. And at the end, He takes the bad people out of the world. Notice the Son of God is there, the Son of Man is there in the beginning, and He's there in the end. He's really in charge of everything. Okay? Now, guess what? We live between the beginning and the end. We live between these two goalposts. We live in the world. And in this world are the people of God, and there are the people of Satan, and they coexist. And that's the nature of the world. Might not be the way I like it, might not be the way you like it, but it is the way Jesus describes it. And he says, This was God's plan from the beginning, and he's now revealing it to us, fulfilling the scriptures in Isaiah. He's now revealing all this to us. So we discover that between now and then, our job is not to judge, our job is to watch. Wait and witness. Our job is to watch, to wait, and to witness. Because we're like yeast. And just as the evil can have an effect on the good, guess what? The good has effect on the evil. We are to witness. That's what we're to do between the beginning and the end. Because who knows? Isn't it possible that if you witnessed one of Satan's children would move over into the Christian camp? Wouldn't it be terrible to pull that person up and throw them into the fire before time? 
So, he's giving us a strategy of what we're to do between now and then. We're to watch, we're to wait, and we're to be witnesses for Christ. And then at the end of that age, the others will be judged. Look at verse 43. The eighth part of the puzzle is, then the righteous will shine as the sun. Where? In the kingdom of their father. In the kingdom of their father. That is equivalent to verse 30. At the end of verse 30. At the end he will gather the wheat into his what? Barn. So the barn is the father's kingdom at the end of the age. By the way, that word barn is not the first time it was used. It's been used in Matthew's Gospel. John the Baptist used that. Do you know that? I want to show you something. Look over Matthew chapter 3. And look how he used it. Matthew chapter 3. Look down at verse 12. He talks about the final judgment. John the Baptist talked about it. Verse 12. 3.12 says, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the what? Barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Same thing Jesus says, preaching the exact same message, using the same imagery, but he's talking about people. So, we are gathered into the barn, or what verse 43 calls, the kingdom of his Father. Now this is interesting, because right now Christ reigns. We're in the kingdom of Christ. Right now, this is called, we live in the kingdom of Christ, but guess what? One day Christ is going to turn the kingdom over to his Father. And God will be all in all. And even Jesus will be submissive to his Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 25, verses 25 through 27 says. So we see that there is a future kingdom, which is called the kingdom of the Father, which is going to be the ultimate kingdom when peace indeed will rule on earth. Until then, friends, in this world you will have tribulation. Doesn't mean you can't do everything that it takes humanly reasonable and ethical to make this world better. You should do that. But guess what? If things don't turn out the way you want them, or you want them, or I want them, what are you going to do? Can't do that. Still going to trust the Lord. He's got His plan. It's going to work out in the end. Look what he says at the verse, end of verse 43. He who has ears, let him hear. Let him hear. So our job, guess what our job is? Our job is to grow where we're planted and be God's people. And if the kingdom is like yeast and the kingdom is like a mustard seed, guess what? The kingdom gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Christianity is not to be associated with democracy. There are Christians in other nations that are not democratic, and the kingdom of God and Christianity flourishes in those nations. Christianity is flourishing in China, and it's growing. It's growing larger every year. A communist nation... It's flourishing in nations where there are dictators. And guess what? People get saved. 
Kingdom of God continues to grow. It flourishes in socialist countries. Down in Latin America, which you can't get much more socialist than some of those countries. But guess what? Christianity continues to grow, doesn't it? And in the end, who wins out? The kingdom of God. In the end, guess what? Justice will be done perfectly, and it will be the Son of God, who's the perfect one and the righteous one, who works all things out. In the meantime, we live side by side with evil. And the important thing for us to do is to grow where we're planted and be witnesses. And we can have an influence even on them. This is another parable of growth. Next week, we get to what I'm going to call the parables regarding treasure. The first one is the parable of the hidden treasure, verse 44. And then the parable of the pearl of great price, which is, deals with a treasure. And then we see the parable of the dragnet. And then to verse 52, it's, verse 52 says, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure. So we'll see three parables next week that are related to treasure. Okay? And how precious the kingdom of God is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that <clears throat> we live in a nation that's free and we have some choices. But we don't make the final decisions. We don't know how things are going to happen. Citizens of America do not think with one mind. Even Christians don't think with one mind. And so everybody will be casting a vote. All thinking they're doing your will. And in the end there will be a choice made. And next week we'll come back and we'll discover what to look for in the next four years. And it may not be what we think it should be done. But Lord, we know this is, the, this is the human dilemma. This is the worldwide human dilemma. So Lord, help us not to abandon being Christians. Help us not to live like agents of Satan and do dirty tricks and worry and fret and judge, but help us, Lord, to put our faith in you, grow where we're planted, be positive witnesses for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.